So the first person to stand up and tell me the song that Lara is playing, you get a point. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Go ahead, Lara. Mr. Chris. Angels, we have heard or not. Was he correct? Okay. All right, play another one. Mrs. Mrs. Monday over here. God rest you, Mary, gentlemen. Okay, play another one. Mackenzie, what child is this? Okay. Anybody? All right, nobody knows that one. Okay. No, I don't think that's it. You got to stand up. Mrs. Frank, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Was she correct? She was, okay. Do it again. Anybody know that one? Anybody know that one? Nobody knows that one, okay? Do it again. Shepherds watch their flocks. Yep. Okay, do it one more time. Does anybody know that one? Negative. All right. So you're in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll explain to you why we played that game here in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Tonight, I want to look at, I guess, a touchy subject. Um, a subject that gets people all worked up and worried and bothered, and sometimes it's kind of scary to talk about. But I read 1 Corinthians 14, like last week sometime in my devotions, or so, I read it. I don't remember why I was reading it, but I was reading 1 Corinthians 14, and it just kind of stuck in my mind. But in my devotions, I've been reading through the book of Acts. And as I'm reading through the book of Acts, I'm taking notes, and I'm kind of just like, writing down what's going on in a group of verses, and I'm kind of trying to like map the book of Acts out and kind of timeline it for myself so I can kind of see like what's going on and, and where some things are. For example, did you know that in the book of Acts, there is a group of people, I think it's two people, who were prophets who prophesy of a famine. Did you know that? Do you remember reading that? And when they prophesy of that famine, the churches get together and they send relief, financial help to that region because those men prophesied concerning the famine. Did you know that? You ever heard that before? You ever read that? You remember that? We don't, you probably don't. I was kind of like, I don't remember that. I thought that was kind of cool. And there's just little things. So I've been reading through the book of Acts and I was going to share some of that tonight. But then pastor said what he said this morning about whoever it was that put something on Facebook about us not believing in miracles and healing and the speaking and we don't believe in the speaking in the speaking of tongues anymore. And um, I don't know, I just got to thinking about that. And I had just read First Corinthians 14 and I said, you know what, I think I'm going to go through chapter 14 tonight. And that's what we're going to do for our preaching time. I don't necessarily have an outline. Um, I don't necessarily have any points. 
I just kind of have some thoughts. I just kind of want to read through it and hit on what the Bible says real quick. But um, it kind of starts in 1 Corinthians 13. You know 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. Um, Paul pretty much defines love in Romans chapter or in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 1 through 7. But look at verse 8. The Bible says, charity never faileth. There will never be a point in time when charity ends. Charity will always be a thing. Love will always exist. God's love will always be there. God's love will always exist. And God's love, charity, is something that you and I will always be able to demonstrate. It doesn't matter what your spiritual gift is. It doesn't matter what your talents are. It doesn't matter what you can or cannot do. You can display love towards others. And that will always be true. But, notice verse 8, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, and whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So these, these gifts were temporal. They were temporary. They were not meant to last. What's interesting is the word fail, and I believe the word vanish away means there's going to come a point in time when they will stop. I will end them. But that's not what it means when it says tongues, tongues shall cease. That tongues shall cease means God had built into tongues a detonator. There was a natural end to where tongues were just going to run out. It wasn't like God was just going to cut it off. It was just going to run out after a certain amount of time. It was just going to end. But they were temporal. And then in verse 9 it says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. You see, these sign gifts, what we call them sign gifts usually, they were partial. It would be kind of like, let's say me and you go to Walmart tonight and we get, or we could order it and just have them throw it in the trunk of the car, either way. But anyway, we could get a puzzle. Let's get a thousand piece puzzle and this is what we're going to do. I'm going to take the puzzle home, but you're going to put it together. But what I'm going to do is every day, I'm going to put a piece of that puzzle in the mail, put a stamp on it, and I'm going to send it to you. And when you receive that piece, you put it where it goes. And then the next, and so every day you'll get a piece of that puzzle. Now, how difficult do you think that would be? That'd be pretty tough. And that's kind of how these signed gifts work. They didn't get everything. They got one little piece of doctrine or truth through these gifts. And so when somebody would speak in tongues or somebody would prophesy or somebody would share some kind of knowledge that God had given them, they would just get a little glimpse. They would get one little piece of truth. And you'll see that, see that a little bit more in chapter 14, I think. But so these were partial things. They weren't complete revelation. And verse 10 says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, what's interesting is there's a, there are a number of views on what this perfect thing is in verse 10. I personally believe, pastor also believes, but I personally believe that it is the word of God. I believe that these sign gifts, and this is why I believe it's the word of God, these sign gifts were revelation. They were God speaking to the church. It was God giving his word and his will to the church. And now that we have completed scripture, we don't need those signs anymore. They're gone. Because God has given us what he wants us to have. So we don't need the signs anymore. Um, so anyway, that's what I believe that that perfect thing is, shall be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. 
in the context, we're talking about these sign gifts. Here, Paul says that these sign gifts are immature. They were in the beginning stages. They were in the infancy of the church at the beginning. But that is growing, and as that's growing, more revelation is coming. And eventually that perfect thing's going to come. That word perfect means mature. It means complete. It has all the things that God wants it to have, and it's done. And then in verse 12, it says, And now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even else as I'm known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, notice this, but the greatest of these is charity. So, we have these sign gifts. Now, let's say you tell me, Pastor Wes, I don't think they're, they're done away with. I think people still speak, speak in tongues. I still believe that uh, there are prophecies. And now we believe in the gift of prophecy, but you'll see in chapter 14, I think, verse 2, kind of how we define prophecy today. Um, and you say, no, I still believe in those things. Okay, fine. Let's look at chapter 14, though, because in chapter 14, you kind of find the credentials. Or you kind of have the rule, the guidelines for prophecy and for speaking in tongues. So if you want to say, hey, I still believe in tongues, okay, fine. Let's see what the Bible says about tongues. What does it, how does it function? What does it do? So look at chapter 14, verse 1. Notice the first thing. Paul says, follow after charity. Now remember, charity is that eternal thing. This word follow means to chase, to pursue, to go after it with everything you got. Listen, we get caught up, honestly, in the wrong thing. These Corinthians were caught up in the wrong thing. They were all about the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and prophesying and dropping some knowledge. That's what they were all about. And he says, no, pursue, char pursue charity, pursue love. That's what you should be about, is love. So follow after love and desire. That word desire means to be zealous of, to be passionate about spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. Now, in this chapter, Paul's going to end up telling these Corinthian believers that prophesying is better than tongues. That's what he's going to end up saying, that prophesying is better than tongues. So verse 2, notice what he says, for he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. Now, the key here in verse 2 is the fact that it's unknown and it's not understandable. You need to realize that when a person, whether it's today or whatever, if they are speaking in tongues, they're not speaking to you and me. They're speaking to God. It's unintelligible. I don't know what they're saying. So now it's become something that is between them and God. You're going to see here uh, a little later on that it becomes a spiritual thing that is personal between just them and God. Okay? But this is in church. This is in a public setting. Okay? But it's just between them and God. Nobody else. Verse 3. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men. Here's why prophesying is better than tongues. Because prophesying is speaking in the known language to you and to me. And notice what it does in verse 3. It edifies, it speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. 
And there I would say that's where we get our modern definition for prophecy as a spiritual gift. It is the ability to exhort, to edify, and to comfort. But here, prophesying, Paul points out that when you spoke in tongues in an unknown language, that's between you and God. That doesn't do you any good. doesn't do me any good. But when you prophesy, you're speaking to men now, and you're telling us what God has told you, and now that's going to edify, exhort, and comfort. Which one's more profitable? Obviously, the prophesying. The prophesying is more profitable. Verse 3 says, but he that prophesies, or we just read verse 3, verse 4, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. You see, in a public setting like this, when we meet together as a church body, it is better for you that somebody prophesy rather than speak in tongues in an unknown language. Does that make sense so far? Does that, does that, I mean, does that make sense? You're all looking at me like this. Am I supposed to shake my head yes? I don't know. Is it, does it not make sense? It doesn't make sense? Kind of makes sense? Okay, so anyway, Paul's saying prophesying is better than speaking in tongues. Notice verse 5. He says, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues. Notice this. Except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now here in verse 6, we find that tongues can be profitable, but there needs to be an interpreter. There needs to be an interpreter. If it's done publicly... It has to be interpreted. Now, you have to understand something. Speaking in tongues at this point in time was not somebody standing up in a church service going, and making some random noise. It was an actual language. They would stand up and they would speak in Spanish. They would speak in Japanese or whatever was necessary. They would speak in that language and there would be somebody who could interpret and tell people what they said. It was not just noise. So for it to edify, for it to be profitable, there had to be an interpreter. Now notice verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you and speak with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. Now here in verse 6, Paul simply says, it does not benefit you when I come and see you face to face and I preach to you. It does not benefit you if I come and speak in a language or in tongues and you don't understand what I'm saying. Why would I even come then? Instead, he says, it is better for you if I preach by revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or by doctrine. It is better for you if I give you information that you can understand than information that you can't understand. So then he goes on to verse 7, and even these things without life giving sound. Now, here's why we played the game. Now, Mrs. Carnes played Christmas carols tonight, and you knew the Christmas carols. But then she played random bits of noise, and you didn't know what those were. You know why? Because they were random bits of noise. You know a song by its tune. Even if you don't know the words, you know the song. And you might even hear the song, and you have you ever like heard a song, heard the, the tune of a song, and you're humming along? 
And then all of a sudden you get to the chorus and you're like, da-da-da, and then you're singing the words because you know the chorus. Why? Because that song has structure. That song has, has a melody, and it is designed to be a song with all of those parts and all of the things that make it up. When you just play noise, it's nothing. It's just noise. Notice what happens in verse 7. The Bible says, And even these things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, notice this, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? There is, in music, there is a distinction in sound. There is a distinction in notes and structure and the way it's put together, and it makes it that song. Here, Paul says, there has to be a distinction in sound for you to know what is being piped or what is being harped. Verse 80 says, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? They had certain sounds that came from a trumpet that noise, hey, it's time to fight. But if they just played some random sound, the army's going, what was that? What do we do? They were looking for a certain sound. Verse 9, so likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words, easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Notice here Paul says, if you don't utter words that are easy to be understood, you're just making noise. You're simply wasting breath, and you're just throwing words into the air. That's all you're doing. He says in verse 10, There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without sig signification. Signification. I think verse 10 is an interesting verse. Here, Paul says, Every voice matters. Every tongue matters. Every language matters. If you want a verse that is anti-racist in your Bible, this is a great one. Here, Paul says, every voice matters. There is not a tongue, there is not a voice, there is not a language in the world, and none of them is without signification or significance. It's a double negative. In other words, every language is significant. They all matter. What an awesome thing. Verse 11, Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Verse 12, Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, notice this, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Listen, the problem with these Corinthians is they were so caught up with their spiritual gifts that they weren't concerned with edifying, building up, encouraging, strengthening, fortifying, and helping their fellow believers. Because they were too caught up in their spiritual gifts. And here, Paul points out very, very pointedly, it's not about your spiritual gift, it's about edifying the church. God was going to use that spiritual gift to edify not about you it's about everybody as a whole so here in verses 7 through 12 paul gives us this illustration of music that 
Just as music is intelligible and you can make sense of, of a tune, I could, I could get on my phone and I could just start playing instrumental versions of songs and some of you would know those songs just by the instrument, just by the way it sounds. Most of you can listen to just the very few beginning bars of a song and you're like, oh, I know this song. Because it's intelligent. And listen, speaking in tongues was not unintelligent or unintelligible speaking or shouting and just making noise. It was actual language that, was in, that you could make sense of. So verse 13, wherefore let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. So now here Paul switches gears. Okay, so if you're speaking in an unknown tongue publicly, then you need to pray that God will help you interpret whatever you're saying. Then in verse 14, he says, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. To who? To you and to me. He, you can pray in an unknown tongue, I guess, but it doesn't help anybody. It only helps you. It doesn't edify the church. It only edifies yourself. Verse 15, what is it then? I will pray in the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit and I will uh, sing with the, understand, with the understanding also. It becomes a spiritual thing. Why? Because it's just between you and God. Verse 16, else when thou shalt bless with the spirit. So he's saying if you speak in an untongue, if you, if you bless, if you give a testimony in an unknown tongue, it becomes a spiritual thing between just you and God. So notice what he says. How shall he that occupieth the room? So how shall somebody that's in the room with you of the unlearned, so I don't know what you're saying, say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest. So here's Paul's point. You, if you testify and you praise God in an unknown tongue, and I don't know what you're saying, how am I going to go, amen, brother, that's great. Praise the Lord. I can't. Why? Because I don't understand what you're saying. So now, once again, it's just a thing between you and God, and you're not edifying the church. You're not edifying the body. You're only edifying yourself. Does that make sense? Is this making sense? Maybe a little bit, I hope, kind of. All right, verse 17, for thou verily givest thanks well. He says, good, you're giving thanks. But the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than, than ye all. I don't know, maybe he was southern. Um, anyway, yet in the church, notice this, notice verse 19, this is important. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Here, Paul says five understandable words are more important than 10,000 not understandable words. See what he's saying? You would do better to say five words and sit down and say five words that make sense and that actually edify comfort or exhort the body of Christ than you do to stand up and say 10,000 words that nobody understands. So he goes on, verse 20, brethren, be not children in understanding. Here's kind of that idea of growing up. These, these, uh, these believers were kind of immature in their understanding of their gifts and in the way they treated each other. But notice he says, brethren, be not children in understanding, how be it uh, malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Now here, uh, if you, you can write down Romans 16, verse 19 if you want, but there uh, Paul says to be simple concerning evil. 
Here, Paul in verse 20 says, listen, you need to grow up and mature in your understanding, but be simple concerning evil, concerning malice, concerning wickedness. In other words, you guys are mature. You know too much about the wrong thing. And you need to grow up in your spiritual understanding, and you need to get a hold of some things. So he goes on in verse 22, And the law it is written, with men, of, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Verse 22, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now here Paul says that's, that the, the tongue was a sign to those who don't believe. And that prophesying is for the believer. It's an interesting thought. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church become together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, notice what they say. Will they not say they are mad? Unfortunately, I think the unsaved world has more sense than a lot of people that claim to be Christians when it comes to this issue. The world looks at, the un, looks at supposed Christians and believers who are speaking in tongues and like, those people are crazy. But here, Paul says that that's their reaction when they see us speaking in tongues. But notice the result of prophesying in verse 24. So the result of tongues to the unsaved world is those people have lost their minds. They're nuts. They're crazy. Verse 24, though, but if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, notice this, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. See, the prophesying to the unbeliever was a testimony. Why? Because it was God revealing his word. It was God giving revelation to the believers. Go over to Hebrews chapter 4 and read verse 12 where it tells us that the, that the, uh, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, the words of God are alive and they are powerful. And when the unbeliever would come in and see those believers prophesying and he would hear the word of God, it would cut to his very soul, the very inner being, who he really was, and it would reveal to him what he is and what he was. And God says that right here in verses 24 and 25, that prophesying, prophesying is both beneficial to the believer, but it is also beneficial to the unbeliever. Why? Because it reveals God, reveals truth, and shows them that they're a sinner. So prophesying was better once again. Verse 26, how is it then, brethren? How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Once again, let it all be done so that you can edify others. Now notice verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue. Now, Paul's going to lay down some ground rules. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most, by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. So listen, this wasn't to be one person who stands up and just speaks in a tongue. 
There was to be at least two, and at the most three, and somebody was able to interpret. Notice also, it's by course. It was to be done orderly. This wasn't just three people standing up and shouting at the same time. This wasn't just three people making noise. No, no, this was an orderly thing. It was by course, and they were supposed, one would, one would, pro one would, speak in tongues the other one would speak in tongues somebody would be able to interpret and it was understandable that was the public church setting rule for speaking in tongues it was to be interpretable it was to be done orderly and it was to be done by two or at the most three so this was not one human being one person one individual's amazing thing from god no no, no. there were witnesses there were people who could substantiate what they were saying. So this wasn't just one person out on a whim all by themselves and, oh, I got something special to tell you. No, no, no. There was going to be two and maybe three. Does that make sense? So he goes on in verse 28. But if there be no interpreter, notice this, let him keep silence in the church. In other words, if there's nobody to interpret, you sit down and you shut up. You don't get to say what you, what you think you have to say. Because you don't have anybody to interpret it. And let him speak to himself and to God. Remember, when it's, when it's not a known language and I'm speaking in a tongue, it's just between me and God. It's now become a spiritual thing that's just between me and God. So Paul here in verse 28 says, fine then, you sit down, you be quiet, and you keep it between you and God. It doesn't get to become a public thing. Because you didn't meet the criteria. There's not two or three. It's not orderly. And we can't interpret it. So you don't get to share it. That's the way it works. So in verse 29, let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another. Now listen. Well, actually, no. Verse 30. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. Now here you have the criteria for the prophet, for the prophesying. Now notice what happens here. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. So now here, once again, you have multiple. Notice this is not one person. It's not one person speaking in tongues. It's not one person prophesying. There are multiple people, okay? This, this allows you to substantiate the message. that gives it credit. It gives it authority, okay? So there's not just one person out there just saying what they want to say. But notice verse 32 and this, um, verse 31, for ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and that all may be comforted. So notice this, it was for the learning and for the comforting of the church. Notice also in verse 30, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, get this, let the first hold his peace. What's interesting is in the prophesying, there is a point where you have to defer. So if I stand up and I say, oh, I got, I, got a, I got a message I need to share, and Mr. John over here stands up and says, I have a message too, I'm supposed to defer. The first is supposed to let him go first. That's what he says in verse 30. I'm to defer to him. Verse 31, for you may all prophesy one by one that you may learn and that all may be comforted. Notice verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets, get this, are subject to the prophets. In the prophesying, there is an authority structure. And those prophecies are subject to former past prophecies. 
Those prophecies are subject one to another. Do you know what the criteria was in the Old Testament for a prophet? Does anybody know what was the criteria for a prophet? To know if somebody was an actual prophet, how did you know they were a prophet in the Old Testament? Everything they said came true. You can go to Deuteronomy 18.22. You can go to Jeremiah 28, verse 9. Jeremiah 28.9, Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22. And in the Old Testament, the criteria was, you will know that they are a prophet from God if it comes true. If it doesn't come true, the Bible says they're a liar. It actually says that they are presumptuous. They presume to know what they're talking about, but they do not. And so listen, when it came to the prophesying, that prophesying was subject, it was, it, was, um, um, it was subjected to previous prophecies. In other words, you couldn't just stand up and say, I have a message from God, and then contradicts everything else somebody had said. You couldn't, it, it didn't work that way. If you stood up and said, I have a message from God, and it contradicted something else that came true or that was substantiated, you're a liar. It doesn't count. You're not telling the truth. So that was the criteria for the prophesying. Now notice verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, and, is, and as in all churches of the saints. Listen, God is not seeking to create confusion. Whether it's speaking in the tongues or it's prophesying, God is not the author of confusion. So you don't have people over here yelling. You don't have people over here yelling, just making random noises. You don't have one person saying, this is what God said, and this is what God said. This is what, no, 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 no. God doesn't work that way. God has never created confusion god has always been a god of order like mr chris testified tonight of god and his creation i got in an argument one time with a guy that i worked with because well you know it took billions of years for the light to get here from the stars and i looked at him i said what if god just created it that way and man he got mad oh he got so mad about that and i'm like is it really that hard to think that god could just create boom there's the light already it's just done but anyway um, but listen, God's creation in everything. God is a God of order. He's never been a God of confusion. And if it's an atmosphere that is of confusion, God is not in it. Verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Now let's back this up real quick. Number one, guys, if you try to use this verse at home, it don't work. Your wife should just punch you right in the mouth because that's not what God's saying. Secondly, this is not saying that women can't teach Sunday school, that women can't have, a, have an opinion or ask a question. Remember the context. The context is tongues and prophesying. So here, Paul says, let the woman keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. For if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. We're talking about tongues and prophesying. Now here's the thing. You go on YouTube and look up speaking in tongues, and I guarantee you, three, four, 75% of the videos you're gonna find, it's women. It's women. And you know what? That's unbiblical. If you want to say tongues is still here today and people still speak in tongues, it's not for the women to speak in tongues. It is not for the women to prophesy. God worked through the men. 
Now, that doesn't mean a woman couldn't speak in tongues between her and God at church. It doesn't even mean that she couldn't do it at home. I don't know, maybe the prophesying thing happened with a woman at home, but it did not happen publicly in the church. God here says, let the women keep silence. But you will find over and over and over again in all of these so-called modern revivals and all of these so-called uh, current trends in, in churches all over the world, you will find over and over and over again, it's women. And God didn't work that way. They can be mad at me, you can be mad at me, but that's what God says. Modern feminism would say God's a, God's a male chauvinist and they would get mad, but listen, that's how God set up the authority structure. That's the way God works. But you will find over and over and over again in your modern times, in churches, different religions, denominations, and whatever, over and over again, it's women. And God didn't work that way. Not publicly, not in the church. Verse 36, Paul brings this to a close. And I think Paul knew that what he was writing was an issue. He knew that they were going to have a hard time swallowing this pill. So notice how Paul ends chapter 14. What? Came the word of God out from you? Did you create or birth the word of God? No. You're not the originator of God's word. Or came it unto you only? Are you the only ones who have received it? No. Verse 37, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Here, Paul puts an authority stamp on what he has written to the Corinthians. Here, Paul puts an authority stamp on it. He says, listen, if you claim to be a spiritual person or if you claim to be a prophet, then you have a responsibility to acknowledge that what I have just written to you is a commandment from God. If you want to argue about it and you want to fight about it, you're not being a spiritual person. If you want to get your feelings all up in a wad and say, well, I don't know if I like this or if I agree with this, you're not being a spiritual person, he says. What I have just written from you is a commandment from God. That's pretty strong language. He says in verse 38, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. I kind of like that verse. You know, it's amazing how we can complicate things almost for the sake of complicating them. You know, some people, if, if you've ever coached a sport and you got a kid who's athletic and he's good at what he does, just let him play. If you start to try to tweak with certain details and certain things, it's easy to mess that kid up. Does that make sense? Um, one thing I really, I, really, I really enjoy, I used to enjoy more, I don't, I don't as much now, but I used to really enjoy doing photography. And there's kind of two sides to photography. There's an artistic side, but then there's also an extremely technical side. You put a lens on your camera that has an, a fast aperture like 1.8 or 1.2 or 1.4 that has a very shallow depth of field, and you try to take a family photo with that picture, some of your people are gonna be in focus and some are gonna be out of focus. And a lot of you just went, what in the world is an aperture and what is 1.2, 1.4, or 2.8? If you're gonna take a family photo, you want something that you, 
you want a lens, it doesn't have to be fast because you're going to want to use like f like 5.6 or f8 or even f11 depending on the family reunion and the size of the group. But you're going to want to use something with a broader field of focus so that way you get everybody in that family photo in focus. And once again, all of you said whatever f8, f11 or whatever is. That's the technical side of photography. But listen, when you got somebody that is just amazingly artistic and they're just playing with their camera and they create beautiful images and they're just doing their thing, you don't overcomplicate it with f-stops and apertures and settings. You just let them take photos. You know why? Because they're an artist and they got an eye and they have a talent. Sometimes we do that with Christians. We overcomplicate things and we get focused on the wrong thing and you got some new believer or you got a believer who just loves God and is trying to do the right thing and we get caught up in whatever and they're ignorant of some things and then we complicate it and then they get all like frazzled. And here Paul says, let, if they're ignorant, just let them be ignorant. Let them love God. Let them, let them live their Christian life. If they got a question, answer their question. But you know what? Leave them alone and just let them love God. Let the ignorant be ignorant. That's fine. Verse 39, wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak in, with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So, a few thoughts I want to give you real quick and we're done. I realize we've gone long. A few thoughts real quick. Number one, in verse one, he said, follow charity. Chase after charity. Seek to love don't get caught up in everything else. Don't get caught up in all the other spiritual gifts and comparing yourselves among yourselves. Instead, follow, chase, pursue charity. Verse five, edify in all things. Verse 26 tells us, seek to edify, to build, to comfort, to strengthen, to build up your fellow believers. That should be your goal. Verse 33, don't forget that God is not the author of confusion. If there is confusion, it's not of God. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. God is a God of order and decency, and we should act the same way. We should seek to have things done decently and order, not chaotically. Verse 20, grow up in your understanding. Grow in your faith. Grow in what you understand. Grow in what you know spiritually. Don't become stagnant. Don't, be, don't stay immature, but grow. And the last one is in verse 37. Have a spiritual response to truth. Have a spiritual response to truth, not a fleshly one. Not a fleshly one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your word. Thank you for being a God of order. Thank you for being a God that wants to edify and build his people. Lord, may that be our goal. Help us to follow after. Help us to chase after charity to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.